0: Okay, so we have Ezra 7, 27 through 28, and 8, 21 through 23. So let's start off with 7, 27 through 28. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such things into the hearts of kings, the beauty of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and, and who extended to me a steadfast love before the kings and his counselors, and before the mighty king's mighty officers, I take courage for the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me and gathered I gathered leading men to, uh, from Israel to go with me. That's Ezra 27, or 7, 27 through 28. Then we got 8, 21 through 23. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Aveha that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him a safe or to seek him a safe journey for ourselves our children and all our goods for i was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against our enemy or the enemy in our way since we had uh, since we had to since we had told the uh, king the hand of our god and for uh, the hand of our god is for good On all who seek us. And the power of his wrath is against those who forsake us. So we fasted and implored our God for this. And he listened to our entreaties. This is the very word of God.
1: Well, that was a great family child dedication. Those four families... Uh, all came to Crosstown about the same time when we were just getting started. Um, I think all of them were unmarried. Some of them weren't even dating yet, and now here they are. There was eight boys up there, and one girl, So Libby is the only female representative among those nine children, but yeah, it's just really exciting to uh, see that this morning. And the Lord has blessed us all very much. Well, i want to ask you a question this morning. Um, it's a rhetorical question, but just take a moment and think about it. Would you consider yourself a courageous person? Are you a courageous person? Of course, the answer to a question like that would depend on uh, what we mean, what we understand courage to be. A couple recent events in the news have me thinking about what is courage. There is, of course, the news that sometime next month, Jeff Bezos is going up into space. Lots of conversations about the riskiness of that act. Apparently, a petition going around to uh, see that he doesn't come back. I hope that you are not one of those signers of the petition. Don't be so mean, Christians. On a more somber note, um, recently a motorcycle stuntman, Alex Harville, trying to set a new world record, tragically died on a lengthy motorcycle jump. Had a lot of people, again, asking the question whether such an act is an act of courage or not so again, I ask you, are you a courageous person now it 's not likely that many of us would think that you have to do something so drastic as go up into space or attempt to set a world motorcycle jump record to show courage. Um, Mindy and I were talking this morning about what courage is, and I think she gave a really good definition. she said. Courage is when something like, I, this is just this morning, so, uh, when, the, when the thrill of success overcomes the dread of defeat, that is when you act courageously, when the thrill of the success overcomes the dread of defeat. I'm thinking about courage this morning because that theme really resonates through both Ezra chapter 7 and chapter eight, so we pick up our story in the eighth chapter. We've we had I had Luke read the last few verses of chapter seven because we we really need to get a running start at it. We recall in the previous chapter we were introduced finally to the author of the book, the man named Ezra. Chapter seven introduces the second plot in the story of Ezra. The first dealt with the initial return from exile with an aim toward the rebuilding of the temple. The second plot deals with another group of exiles returning with Ezra. This time the aim is the the, uh, building upon the achievements of the first return, the, the beautifying of the temple, rebuilding God's laws over the region once again. And all of this comes under the decree of another Persian king, Artaxerxes, at the end of chapter 7, Ezra rejoices in the evidence of God's providence in his own day and in the decree of the Persian king. He writes, let me read the verses again to us, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers, note this, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. For Ezra, so stunning was the favor of this pagan Persian king that he could not help, but notice the real power behind it all. God was evidently at work in what Ezra was experiencing, so much so that Ezra says, I took courage. Now, the verb to to take courage here means not just that Ezra felt encouraged, the emphasis in this Hebrew verb falls upon the action that takes place in light of the confidence that Ezra had, knowing that the will of God was blowing behind his back. Ezra showed himself courageous. And chapter 8 shows us the ways in which Ezra displayed courage. When you know... Where God's favor is found. Where you can see the hand of God at work. You can be courageous. You can take great risks of faith. That is to say. That God calls all of us. To believe in him. And his reign. Over us. In such a way that we make choices. We make choices. We, we live in deliberate ways. That will seem crazy. Crazy to the world, but are actually courageous. And here in chapter 8, we see three examples of this from Ezra. Three ways in which we see God's grace encouraging him and others to show courage. The courage to return, the courage to risk, and the courage to remain. The courage to return the courage to risk, and the courage to remain. First, when Ezra saw the evidence of God's grace in the decree of the Persian king Artaxerxes, it encouraged him and others to return, to return to Jerusalem. The last sentence in chapter 7 says this. Having seen how God moved a pagan king to endorse this second return from exile in Babylon, Ezra declared, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And then chapter 8 begins with another list, a list of those who went with Ezra to Jerusalem. Now, The second episode in the book of Ezra, the second plot, I should say, tells us of a a second return of exiles in Babylon to Jerusalem. Pastor Jod showed us last week that this return occurs some 80 years after the first one. But like the first one, you've already noticed the similarity. This one is credited to God's providential work in the heart of a pagan king. It's one of those obvious striking things in the story that Ezra tells between the first plot and the second plot. Both of them are initiated by the providential hand of God working in the heart of a pagan king. As God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, Ezra 1.1, so now he has, Ezra 7.27, put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. But God's providence over the pagan kings is meant to have a further impact. It's not only stirring up the pagan king, but in chapter 1, verse 5, we read that it's supposed to stir up God's people as well. Ezra 1:5 we read of those Jews in Babylon whose spirit God had stirred up whose spirit God had stirred to go up to Jerusalem and that chapter of course is followed by a long chapter Ezra 2 detailing the names and numbers of those who went back to Israel the same thing happens here in the second plot so you can see that these are not just two Uh, Random stories put together by some future editor Ezra is telling a story putting these two Episodes together in the history of Israel. What is he trying to tell us? His theological point I think can easily be missed when we come to chapter 2 And its list or the beginning of chapter 8 and its list But it's no stretch to see that Ezra is in fact making a theological point that we dare not miss You see, these two lists demonstrate that the group who returned with Ezra in chapter 8 are descendants of the group that returned in chapter 2. And it is these who have answered the call, it is these whose heart that God has stirred, who have the right to call themselves the remnant of the people of God. Think of it this way, from the perspective of the Babylonian captivity, Israel destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, Jerusalem torn down, the temple obliterated, the people of God sent into exile. From that perspective, the nation of Israel now is divided into three different groups. There were some who never went into captivity in Babylon, the so-called people of the land, They're presented in the book of Ezra as adversaries. There's a second group, and that would be those who went into exile but evidently never returned, or or descendants of those who went into exile never to return. And these two are implicitly denied the status of the people of God according to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 24, verses 8 through 10. The people of God, those who have the right to call themselves the people of God, those upon whom God's hand rests, are those who, as Ezra would have us see it, went into exile, were chastened by the heavy hand of God, but then came back. The prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 24, 5-7, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. You see it? They went away. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up, not tear them down. I will plant them, not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. The point is this, God manifests his reign in history and his people are those who have the courage to respond to his reign and follow his call. The manifestation of God's reign is, The evidence of his acts in redemptive history is powerful, but it also creates a dividing line. Only those who respond to it are counted, are numbered among God's people. Many simply do not obey and are therefore not part of the fulfillment of God's prophetic prophetic fulfillment in history. Obedience is a necessary ongoing concomitant of prophecy fulfillment says one commentator on this point. As Christians, we understand that the great dividing line in God's great redemptive history is the person of Jesus Christ, Israel's promised Messiah. We believe, of course, that this Jesus is full of grace. In him, we see most clearly the one who has the hand of God upon him. But grace, according to the scripture, is not a thing It does not exist apart from God himself. You can't have grace apart from having Christ. Grace is only found in him. Thus, the meaning of Israel's return from exile, both the first return and the second one that Ezra tells us, is exactly what Jesus means, exactly what Jesus means when he calls Israel to repentance in his own ministry. To repent is to return, and it takes a great deal of courage. To be a Christian, to truly repent, means to adhere to and show complete allegiance to Jesus. It means forsaking every other way of seeking the good life that we all crave. And by the way, Jesus required repentance of everyone, of everyone. Sooner or later, Every single person, all of us, will have to consider whether we are truly turning to the one in whom grace is found or not. What if the way of Jesus is wrong? What if Jesus was a fraud? Then according to the Bible, we are not just mistaken, we are wrong. Our faith is futile if Jesus is not the one in whom grace is found. We are still in our sins. We still have no hope. As Paul says, if Jesus is not raised, if Jesus is not the hope to which everyone must turn, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Jesus is the dividing line. Jesus is the one who calls us to return to God. And those who are numbered among God's people are only those who turn away from every other way of salvation and embrace completely and totally the way of Jesus. Second, when Ezra saw the evidence of God's grace, not only did it encourage him and others to return to Jerusalem, it also encouraged him and others to take risks. There's two different scenes in verses 15 to 23 that demonstrate this risk. First, in verse 15, the scene shifts to a river or a canal outside Babylon, an apparent staging ground for the group setting out on the journey. Ezra takes inventory of those who are numbered among the people of God, those who are the returnees from exile, and he's found none of the sons of Levi. Now, the Levites were the God ordained ministers in the temple though only the Levites who were descendants of Aaron could serve as priests. The Levites also served, according to Numbers 341, as representatives for the entire nation of Israel. So what's going on here is Ezra is concerned that not one Levite, not one representative of the people of God is found among, in the group. Because remember, the whole point of going back to Jerusalem, of returning to the nation of Israel, is the restoration of the nation as God's people. If Israel's exile is going to end, then the ministerial tasks of temple worship will need to resume. And for that, we're going to need some Levites. So Ezra goes into action, showing that he's concerned for the spiritual well-being of Israel. His concern is not just, let's get back into the land. His concern is, let's be the people of God again. The people of God, while together called a kingdom of priests, still need their God-appointed ministers and servants. This was true in Ezra's day. And by the way, it's true in ours. It's true in the New Testament era. The people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, needs its pastor elders, but it also needs its minister deacons. In verse 18, we find our familiar phrase. It occurs six times in chapters 7 and 8, by the good hand of our God on us. So Ezra gets his Levites, but what was the courage that he showed here? What was the risk that was taken? Ezra does not tell us this explicitly, but there's enough evidence here to make a pretty good educated guess. Most of the commentaries do this. Verses 16 and 17 show that it took quite an effort to persuade the Levites to go back. Ezra sends a delegation of leading men and men of insight with a planned script to convince some Levites to join the team. Do you see that? The Levites seem very reluctant to go back, not just now, but also comparing with chapter 2 and the first return as well. We are told in chapter 2 that while over 4,000 priests went back in the first return, there were only 74 Levites, 4,000, if you will, pastor elders, but only 74 deacons among the people of God. Why such hesitation? Several commentators have suggested that the Levites may have taken on a priestly status during the exile, so they're not so interested in returning to their inferior roles in the temple at Jerusalem. Who would risk taking a demotion for a spiritual cause? Who would counsel anyone to do such a thing? Would you? Would I? It certainly is not the ordinary way we tend to think about such things. Nevertheless, Ezra makes an effort to persuade some Levites to come with him. His request is in verse 17. Send us ministers for the house of our God. Again, remember, ministers, ministers, these are servants. These are people who had to get there before everybody else, set things up, stay until everybody else left, who's volunteering. These are the ones who have to, uh, yeah, take their turn in the preschool ministry team. Oh, that's where these servants are. These are the ones cleaning the bathrooms. Yes, being a bit anachronistic. But these are the ministers for the people of God, whether vocational or volunteer. Men and women who will give their lives to the humble work of ministry in the church that is on behalf of the entire congregation. Yes, we're all ministers. Yes, we're all servants. But the church needs specific individuals, right, to lead in these ministries, now Ezra's request was answered by the good hand of our God on us. He says they succeeded, and the results were better than it could have been expected. We're told of a man of discretion named Sherebiah who responded to the call, along with a man named Hashabiah, together with others from their families, totaling 38 people plus 220 temple servants, apparently assistants to the Levites. God, among his people, will call his ministers. Will you respond to the call? That's the question. To answer the call will be risky. But when you see the evidence of God's grace, you can take the risk of faith. You can obey God's call. Listen, church. The church needs, that is the people of God, needs It's ministers. It needs those who will say, I will take on an extra responsibility of service on behalf of the entire congregation. Maybe Micah's going to be the next minister. He was ready to take that microphone and serve, wasn't he? But maybe it's you. Maybe God's calling you to take the risk, volunteer or vocationally, to enter into the ministry of God's people. Will you respond to the call? Now, the second scene in the episode is found in verses 21 to 23. Ezra calls for a fast before they set out on the journey. He says that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Now, that's understandable. Traveling is dangerous, It's risky even in our own day, but this was especially true in the ancient world. The customary trade routes were filled with bandits seeking to plunder the goods that would accompany travelers making a long journey, but this journey would be even more risky because Ezra tells us in verse 22, look what he says. He was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. He doesn't say that there would have been anything inherently wrong with doing so. In fact, his contemporary Nehemiah had no problem accepting the protection of the king's guard when he made a similar journey in Nehemiah 2 verse 9. So let's not over-spiritualize the story here. Often the grace of God comes to us in the form of a civil law or a court ruling or a scientific breakthrough, like a vaccine that can protect us against a deadly virus. Praise God. That's great. If anything, the differing responses of Ezra and Nehemiah to the offer of a military escort on a dangerous journey, show us once again that Christians can demonstrate their faith in saying yes or in saying no to a debatable issue. We understand that. We understand Christian liberty here means that sometimes Christians take certain acts that seem ridiculous to others, while other Christians take certain acts that seem as if they're faithless. Both of them. Don't be too quick to judge. Both of them can be an act of faith. Ezra did not ask the king for an escort because he had already told him, verse 22, here's our phrase, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. The power of his wrath is against all who forsake him, verse 22, Ezra understood That this journey to Jerusalem was a moment in redemptive history. A fulfillment of God's promise to, as the prophet Jeremiah said, restore the fortunes of the land as at first. So he knew that his obedience to God's call would be seen through to completion. He had no doubt. He knew this was the providential hand of God. This was God in time and space, fulfilling a specific promise. He knew he could trust God fully. Like Abraham obeying God's call to offer up Isaac, he was certain somehow, some way, God is going to come through. But still, verse 23 says, we fasted and implored our God for this. Notice there's no hint of triumphalism here. Ezra does not presume upon God's grace. He asks for it in fasting and prayer. What God has called Ezra to do requires from him a humble yet uncompromising faith, an act of courage. It's one thing to affirm faith, just like we did a moment ago when we recited the Apostles' Creed. We all said, I believe, I believe, I believe, but you know the danger. It's one thing to affirm faith, but God's people should be the first to reflect on whether our actions ever require us to act in faith. Or as one commentator asks us to ponder, can a faith that is never drafted into service survive? Can a faith that just is statements of affirmation but never is taken up As an act of risk, can that faith ever survive? Does your faith in God ever require you, brothers and sisters, to take a risk that unless God comes through on a promise will make you look like a fool? When we see the hand of God, where we see God pouring out grace, where we see the evidence of God's grace, that grace gives us the faith to take risks. Now, finally, the evidence of God's grace encouraged Ezra and the others joining him in this return from exile, not just to return, not just to risk, but to Eddie, I had to have a third R. I had to have a third R. So, much apologies, but also to remain. And what I mean here is to remain in the faith, to endure, to see the mission of faith through to completion. Verses 24 to 36, we read about the successful journey to Jerusalem with a focus on the mission of getting the money and the other valuable Uh, the other valuables, safely to the temple. So verse 24, Ezra sets apart 12 priests and 12 Levites, and he gives them the responsibility of carrying the silver, the gold, and the valuable temple vessels on the journey. Now, we don't usually speak of money in terms of talents, that is weight, unless you're counting gold and silver, and so if you've you probably got a note in your study Bible that will tell you how much a talent is. Do a quick math, and here's what you find out. This is an enormous amount of money that they're carrying with them. 650 talents of silver would equal, wait for it, more than 24 tons of silver. Now, you're about to go on a journey by foot. Um, from the land of Babylon to Jerusalem, bandits are on the journey, are all along the way. You can count on that. Who wants to volunteer to carry twenty four tons of silver, not to mention the gold and all the vessels that are coming back to the temple? You want that task? Ezra gives his chart, oh, and no military escort. Remember that so Who's signing up for this ministry? Ezra gives his charge to the priests and Levites in verses 28 to 29. Here's their mission. Look at it. You are holy to the Lord. That is, you're set apart. You're sanctified. The vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. There's the mission. Now listen, God always gives to his people a mission. All of them. The apostle Paul charged Timothy to guard the good deposit entrusted to him. It sounds very similar to the mission that Ezra gave to the Levites. Timothy was entrusted with something that the Bible says is more precious than silver and gold. All the silver and gold in the world. This good deposit, of course, is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The pure word of God The good news for a perishing world. People of God, are we not all entrusted with this great treasure? Is it not given into your hands? It is our business then, as God's people today, to take up the risky business of guarding the gospel from bandits. (laughs) It's not an easy task. Oh, man, it is not an easy task, especially since according to Jesus, the way to guard this valuable gospel is don't hide it under a basket. You learned that song when you were a kid, but to let it shine before others so that they, too, might give glory to our Father in heaven. If you and I are going to guard the good deposit of the gospel this requires us to say it. It requires us to let it shine. That's the mission. Now, the journey finally begins in verse 31. It's a journey that, of course, back in chapter 7, verse 9, we've already been told, takes four months to complete. Four months. That The journey was a success, but it was not as smooth sailing, I don't think. As we might first have imagined. Yes, we're told in verse 31 once more that the hand of our God was on us. That's the sixth time it shows up in chapter 7 and 8. But the evidence of grace was this. Look at it. Verse 31. The text says, God delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. You see that? The verb delivered. In Hebrew, is also sometimes translated saves. God saved us from the hand of the enemy. It at least opens up the possibility that there were attacks, there were ambushes, there were bandits, but God saw to it that in every encounter with the enemy, they were rescued. The journey itself, even if there were no attacks, would have been exhausting physically and mentally, wouldn't it? I mean, they fasted and prayed for three days. Oh, God, please. We told the king that we didn't need an escort. We told the king that you were real, that you actually exist, that you are the God, not just of some foreign land. You're the God of heaven and earth. You actually come through for your people. So we're begging you, oh, God, come through for us. So even if... All along that four-month journey, there were no attacks, no ambushes. Can you imagine the temptations of anxiety and fear as every day or every day comes to an end and you settle down for the night and you just wonder, is there gonna be an attack tonight? It had to have been not just physically and mentally exhausting. I think the text even te- suggests this to us, because even after arriving in Jerusalem, verse 32, they took a three-day rest before the mission is brought to conclusion. I love that. It's like, we don't even have, oh, they get to Jerusalem, money is still, I'm still carrying the all the tons of money, it's like, need, need a break. Christians understand that a life of faithful obedience to God is always an adventure. Let's not kid ourselves, brothers and sisters. You're going to be a Christian. It's going to take a lot of courage. This journey is not going to be smooth sailing. There's going to be troubles along the way. And if some of you are spared from the suffering and the struggles of other brothers and sisters, Let it be clear, there will be plenty of anxiety and doubt littered along the path. Some of you already know that. Some of you have already experienced that. The Christian life following Jesus as his disciple is not always smooth sailing. There's troubles and dangers ahead, but the word of the Lord always proves true. Always. Christians are empowered to see at the end of our faith journey that God has indeed rescued us. As the Apostle Paul noted at the end of his journey, he has rescued us from every evil deed. He says, he has brought me, he will bring me safely, safely, into his heavenly kingdom. These are the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 who just said that at my last defense, everybody deserted me. No one stood with me. And then he says, God delivered me from the mouth of a lion. One day, however long, however difficult your journey is as a disciple of Jesus, our faith will give way to sight. There will be no doubt at the end of it all that the hand of our God was on us. The reason for the Christian's successful endurance of faith is still and will always be only because of the grace of God. There could be no courage to repent and trust in Jesus. There could be no courage to risk especially in ministry to others. And there could be no courage to remain faithful were it not but for the grace of God. So the rest of the chapter brings the journey to full completion, the successful delivery of the money and the temple vessels. Verse 34 says, The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. Not one penny was lost, and so verses 35 to 36, the journey's over, God has come through, and the response to the people is they gather together, and what else could they do? There's a corporate worship service, a service of thanksgiving, which brings the journey to a fitting end. Yes, of course, thanksgiving, praise, celebration. What else can we say? How else can we respond to the grace of God? The courage of the Christian is not a courage that leads to pride as if we've done this on our own. The courage of the Christian faith is the courage that responds with thanksgiving and praise and delight in the God who has made it possible. Let's pray together.